A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 86, The Byzantine Republic, with Antony Caldellis. Today, we have a fascinating interview with Professor Antony Caldellis, the author of the book, The Byzantine Republic. Now, Professor Caldellis is someone I've quoted on the podcast before. It was his book, Hellenism in Byzantium, that was a major source for episode 41, who is a Byzantine. And it was that book that gave us the great story of the child in 1904 saying, we are Romans to the Greek soldier. Professor Caldellis works at Ohio State University and has translated numerous Byzantine texts. The Byzantine Republic, as you might be able to tell from the title, is making the case for the survival into Byzantine times of something of the Roman Republican past. Now, I'm leaving that deliberately vague because you need to listen to the whole interview to get the full context of what he's arguing. I think you will enjoy this a lot. It is a long interview, about an hour and ten minutes, but you'll get a lot from it. Before we begin, let me just add a couple of things for context. Professor Caldas has uh, Greek ancestry and was in Athens at the time of recording, and uh, it was a few days before the Greek referendum back in July 2015 on whether to accept bailout terms being offered by the European Central Bank. The book was published back in February 2015, but while the book was being written, the events of the Arab Spring of 2011 were fresh in his mind. So that may help explain why those events are used to make comparisons with Byzantium. Also in the interview, there is reference made to the slaughter of a Gothic army on the streets of Constantinople around 399-400 AD. Those events are described in my typical style in the John Chrysostom episodes that you can buy from the website. Finally, I will be doing a brief follow-up episode to discuss some of the things brought up in this interview, but my analysis cannot match up to the value you'll get if you buy the book. Here's the interview. Uh, Professor Caldellis, welcome to the History of Byzantium. Uh, thank you, Robin, for inviting me on. And let me also uh, thank you on behalf of my field for doing something that um, some of us should have had the good sense to do a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, we are very much trapped in the modes of communicating, uh, of, uh, well, more or less medieval modes of communicating, uh, lecturing <laughs> and writing. So when we think of reaching out to the public, we think of writing a shorter book on Byzantium. And, um, <laughs> so I think that you are doing us all an incredible service. So, Well, thank you so much for those kind words and coming on the podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about the ideas in your book, The Byzantine Republic. Um, so let me start by asking what led you to write this book? Well, 
a, I suppose, a, a growing frustration um, with the gap between the Byzantium that I see in the historical sources and the way in which it's represented in modern reconstructions. Um, and that, um, that gap I can sort of summarize uh, by pointing out the following kinds of contrasts or paradoxes um, that we observe when we look at Byzantine history. Um, actually, they're the sorts of things that anyone really notices um, in, in reading narratives of Byzantine history, precisely the kinds of narratives that you're presenting to your audience. But we find ways of normalizing them and making them seem okay when, in fact, we need to sort of highlight them and and notice how peculiar uh, Byzantium was as a political culture. So, for example, um, let's let's notice some peculiarities of the Byzantine political system. Uh, for example, that this is a monarchy that was fairly stable for a very long time, uh, let's say 1500 years, and yet the system of the monarchical system of Byzantium remains stable throughout a very, very large number of rebellions and plots and civil wars. It seems that the Byzantines are fighting a civil war every few years. And so we have a situation where perpetual civil wars or constant civil wars are not actually changing the political system that much. When it changes, it's not normally because of that. There are, there's no one who wants to change the nature of the political system. And yet the emperor is always in danger, is always vulnerable to being overthrown. Uh, and so that is a, is a strange kind of paradox if you think about it. In modern history, revolutions and civil wars tend to lead to some kind of fundamental change in the way the system operates, but not in Byzantium. Um, it's also a con in striking contrast to Western uh, monarchical regimes, which tend to be much more stable dynastically. Right. So there are kind of rules that evolve for the succession. But in Byzantium, they never had those, uh, just as they never did in ancient Rome. And so that's a, also a kind of perplexing feature of the political system. How did anybody cope with the idea of the succession at any time? How, how certain were you that there would be a stable succession? OK, so that's one set of paradoxes. The other is more, let's say, ideological. That is, there's a contrast um, between the way in which we represent Byzantine political ideology and the realities of Byzantine political history. So the ideology we present as being very, very stable, it, it can be summarized and, and, and quoted and repeated and recycled very formulaically, like the emperor is um, appointed or crowned by God and the, the, the legitimacy of the regime is grounded in its of a theocracy of power, and we have all of these texts which explain the close relationship of the emperor and God and, and so forth. And in other words, we have a political ideology that is rooted in very absolute principles. And yet, on the other hand, we have a very turbulent and almost chaotic at times, very dangerous and sort of disloyal political culture uh, where emperors are afraid of uh, threats and plots and coups and rebellions and uprisings, uh, and they're afraid of these because they happen all the time. So how can we use our reconstruction of the political ideology to explain political practice? And it just 
doesn't seem to me that we've been able to bridge that gap. Um, so that's, that's the problem that I, I have been wrestling with for a long time. How does the, the rhetoric, which is all about piety and loyalty and submission and authority, uh, inter interface with the reality, um, which is much more, uh, you know, turbulent. I might even use the word dynamic if we want to sort of prettify it a little bit. So, um, so that was a problem. Uh, there seemed to be a missing middle ground. And the result is that in many narratives, uh, in modern narratives, we have uh, the setup and the setup is, you know, quotes the ideology and this is what the Byzantines thought imperial power was. And then we jump to the narrative and we don't really hear about that ideology anymore. And it just seems to be kind of pure power games and power politics with people maneuvering all the time. And I, I've always wondered what was the context in which they were maneuvering? What did they think they were doing when they were plotting to overthrow the emperor or his dynasty if it was not that ideology? And it couldn't have been. Uh, so that was a set of questions that have troubled me about Byzantium since I first encountered it. Absolutely. And I think listeners will um, remember stories which highlight what you're talking about. I mean, the the wider public may not have known, but when um, Justin, as in Justinian's uncle, comes to power, he's clearly not thought of by anyone who's pushing for him as <laughs> chosen by God or, or a special man in any way. He, he's chosen as a sort of compromised candidate. Um, so when you look at that and and we hear all the time that this idea of the emperor as the god's god's vice regent on earth when you examined that and you wrote the book what did you find about the emperor's position in society what did you come to understand as the, as the reality of how people saw his role and how he really earned and kept power versus that idea that he was appointed by god well, that idea is very important, um, and I don't mean to um, underestimate um, its political role in legitimating the, the imperial regime. So it's once you become emperor, uh, that is the role that you are expected to play. Um, there are significant theological and religious expectations placed on the office, and many of which actually can be um, read in political, social, and military terms. The emperor has a responsibility uh, to defend the empire, um, but also um, to uphold orthodoxy as that is understood through whatever social ecclesiastical mechanisms um, exist at the time. Um, so that's very much the case. But the question is, how do you get to be appointed emperor and what does that mean? Um, so there is no... Um, you know, coronation moment where a private citizen becomes an emperor. Um, so how does that role come to you? Uh, and this is where I began to look at the process by which emperors are made. And actually, in the podcast that you have already uh, made, 
um, especially the ones relating to the fifth century, we can see something resembling a transition in the way in which emperors are appointed. Um, and so specifically, um, as your audience will recall, in the fourth and the early fifth centuries, emperors are largely created by the army. If an emperor wants to appoint his brother or his son as a co-emperor or as an heir, he normally does that through the army. By the end of the fifth century, we have the following situation. Well, there is no Western emperor anymore. Um, and the Eastern emperor is now uh, acclaimed not so much by the army, but by a combination of elements in the capital, that is Constantinople. Uh, so we have a very detailed description of the uh, election appointments and acclamation of the Emperor Anastasius uh, on the death of Zeno. So this is in 491. That is the most detailed account um, that we have in the entire millennium of the making of a Byzantine emperor. It's quite fascinating. Um, it is found in the Book of Ceremonies. This is a 10th century collection, but it's a 6th century description. Um, and it's recently been translated in the Australian series. And I recommend it to anyone who wants to see how all the different steps of creating an emperor. Um, and basically what it involves is a gradual, and we see this throughout the 5th century, a gradual transference of the appointment mechanism from the army to the people of Constantinople. Um, and that remained the case more or less throughout the Byzantine millennium. Um, and, and so my book focuses on the period after that transition has taken place. In other words, after the emperors have settled down in Constantinople and where imperial legitimacy, that is, the process by which you acquire the role of an emperor and all of the theocratic sort of baggage ideology expectations that go with that role, um, um, it is, that role is conferred at large popular assemblies. And I began to realize that those popular assemblies um, were not merely used to um, for this purpose, that is, for the appointment and acclamation of an emperor, but for other kinds of things as well. Um, you are um, covering the reign of Constantine V now, and you probably noticed how he tended to use assemblies in the Hippodrome um, as, um, you know, for propaganda purposes. In other words, he would assemble the people in the Hippodrome to present his agenda. Um, possibly including the punishment of officials who deviated from his policy, um, you know, and for basically drumming up popular support. And emperors tended to use this mechanism um, throughout the history of the empire, really. Um, it was used for appointing heirs. Um, and I can actually um, mention a striking um, event at, toward the end, end of the 12th century, um, which is so oddly reminiscent of what is going on right now in Greece, uh, where, where I happen to be at the moment. So I am in Athens in early July 2015, for future reference. Uh, this is the, uh, we're approaching the referendum on whether to, approach, uh, to accept or reject the um, loan agreement. 
Um, anyway, in 1197, um, the German emperor, Henry VI, was basically threatening Byzantium with an invasion, uh, but promised not to attack if he were paid. Um, he asked, I think, for 5,000 pounds of gold. The Byzantine emperor, Alexius III, um, worked him down to uh, 1,600 in a negotiation, if you will. And the emperor then had to put this or chose to put this before the people of the city in the Hippodrome, presumably. Um, and there was a mass assembly. So it's basically a popular referendum. And it was called, believe it or not, the German tax. And so <laughs> the emperor of Byzantium was asking the population whether to approve or not the German tax to pay off the Germans. And the public sentiment was so overwhelmingly against it. And they started probably to boo and, you know, what, what, what? Uh, and the emperor quickly backed off from this and he started to pretend that it wasn't his idea in the first place. And don't worry about it. I'll find the money somewhere else. Um, so it's an interesting example of how policies needed to be legitimated through some sort of popular consensus. Um, now, of course, you know, these kinds of events are orchestrated and manipulated in advance in all kinds of ways, just as they are today. But what I found was a sort of pattern um, of the popular ratification um, of imperial or elite decisions, sometimes even the populace taking the matter, matters into its own hands. And so from that point um, on, I began to think more seriously about the political role and by extension, the ideological role that was played by the populace of Constantinople primarily in the creation, maintenance and legitimacy of imperial power. Well, can we talk more about that then? Can you give us examples? Because I, I imagine, um, you know, a skeptical listener might think, well, you know, if a, even a divine monarch raises taxes to unbearable levels or persecutes the people, they might end up rebelling. But can you explain that there's the more dynamic interactions and the the ways in which the people thought of and expressed themselves toward the emperor that um, diverts from perhaps what we today might think of the more cordial, formal fearful relationship between the people and the emperor? Well, I think that all um, those different types of interactions and relationships existed, um, but at different times and, um, you know, different emperors had different relationships with their subjects, um, you know, at different times. What I was looking for more was the, the ideological um, uh, substratum that made all of this possible in the first place. But yeah, sure, I can give you some examples. Uh, the, and, and you, you see these, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about how emperors and subjects actually interacted, uh, because there, there were, um, different ways in which this could be done. An emperor, for instance, could, uh, send out instructions or orders or laws through his subordinates. They would be posted, read aloud. Uh, we know already from the period uh, that you covered um, that subjects could sometimes react to these um, very negatively if they were unpopular. 
Um, so all the troubles that Julian experienced in Antioch, for instance, but many other emperors. So um, the sometimes they would uh, post counter notices, uh, post inflammatory or satirical poems about emperors. Sometimes they would chant these uh, in public. Now, here is the risk that every emperor ran, right? So you could isolate yourself in the palace and not have direct contact with the people. Uh, this, presumably this was a safer policy because personal interactions were risky. When an emperor appeared before the people, as inevitably he had to on some occasion, for instance, the races in the Hippodrome or in church, there was the risk that if the situation was uh, tense, if, if something was going wrong in the governance of the empire, this could be any number of things. It could be um, an unpopular religious policy or personnel decision about patriarchs or bishops. It could be a foreign war that was not going well. It could be a tax that was unpopular, <clears throat> unlike all the other popular ones. Um, and uh, the, those um, kinds of problems could create a tense situation that could result in, let's just, I mean, to, to be to down to earth, uh, booing, um, vulgarities, slogans, chanting. Okay. I, I suspect that this was happening most of the time and emperors had to put up with it as the ancient Roman emperors did too. So the Hippodrome was a site of potential conflict. Um, people could boo or, uh, or, or the reverse, right? They could, the emperor could be very popular. Maybe he just won a war. Maybe he just had an heir or something like that. So there was a management of public opinion insofar as Roman and Byzantine technologies allowed. Um, the emperors uh, preferred to appear in public when they suspected there would be a positive reception. Um, and they were reluctant to face the public uh, when it would not be positive. And this is a serious problem for the following reason. There was no right to the throne. In other words, <clears throat> not only was there no right to succeed to the throne, it was, could not be passed through inheritance uh, by itself. You needed this kind of popular ratification and acclamation. But even once you had the throne, so you had been acclaimed emperor, you could still be overthrown at any time. And the prelude to that would be um, popular disenchantment, um, that is grumbling, protests, um, these kinds of things. It seems that the populace of Constantinople was very attuned to what was going on in the palace. They ate up the gossip, probably created a lot of it. So the, the people of Constantinople and also of the provinces, I believe, but this was more intense in Constantinople, uh, were paying very close attention, attention to imperial politics. And so if you came out into the Hippodrome and for one reason or another, the people are restless um, and maybe they start um, calling out things like you are unworthy or you are a liar. So this this happened to Justinian in, in the lead up to the Nika riots. Um, then you're in trouble. 
um, and it gets worse. If two or three hundred thousand of them take to the streets and blockade the palace, then you're in real trouble. Um, there's almost no coming back from that. Um, and let me say that the only person who ever survived that was Justinian. Justinian mm. is the only Byzantine emperor who fought back with armies, you know, killed a very large number of his own subjects, between 30 and 50,000 people in the Nicaraeans. This is in uh, January of 532 and kept his throne. Now, he had to kill about a tenth of his own capital to do that. <laughs> um, but he's the only one who, who ever did. In the rest of Byzantine history, if the people are against you in such numbers, you're finished. Um, you will reach, for instance, um, the downfall of Michael V in 1042 and other similar events. Mm. Now, let me add one more thing, and I'll be brief. It's not the people alone who matter. In other words, you're not just thinking of the, the large masses um, of ordinary Roman citizens in Constantinople. The problem is that emperors are surrounded by rivals for the throne. And these are generals, um, high officials at the court, these, these types. You need these types in order to govern. And you need them to be able to govern well, which means they need to be capable. But the more capable they are, the more popular they get, um, the more of a danger they pose to you. Th this is actually the predicament of being an emperor, right? Because you can't do everything by yourself. You need a core group um, of supporters. I'd say maybe about 10 to 15 would be the inner uh, circle. These are the um, men who handle uh, most of the departments of government, your generals, your finance guys, your patriarch, those guys. Beyond that, um, I'd say there's a there's a wider circle of maybe 300, three to 400 um, other men. And these are your um, subordinate, your um, officers that are in low in rank, your provincial governors, your bishops, these kinds of people. So that wider circle is your pool of potential rivals, usurpers, right? And they are watching. Some of them are very ambitious and they're watching and they're watching to see when you're going to be weak. And so everyone is paying attention to public opinion. And when you are perceived to be weak through the kinds of behaviors that I mentioned earlier, uh, you're in danger. So the problem with the people is that not so much that they will do what happened in the Nika riots or in 1042, which is just rise up directly and take you down by um, engaging in the kinds of uprisings that we saw a few years ago in the Arab world and Egypt. I mean, you just blockade the center of government for enough time that it collapses. Um, so that's one way to take down a regime. And the Byzantines knew this and they practiced it. No, the bigger problem was if someone staged a coup or rebelled against you. And so there's now a potential choice between you and your rival. What happens if public opinion is so far against you that they side with him? 
And that's, I think, the bigger threat. So we have cases of civil war or this contestation. They're actually more like elections. They're not civil wars in the way in which we imagine civil wars, which are sort of usually about something like slavery or the abolition of a monarchy or something like that. They're, they're almost never about anything in Byzantium other than who gets to sit on the throne. Um, so it's like a popularity contest. It's much more like an election. Mm. So we have cases where the people of Constantinople are, are so outside the walls. There is the army of a rebel. And they decide to stick with the sitting emperor. And that support is usually decisive. They can man the walls. They support him. He's emboldened. He fights back. He can hold out until he can bring some loyal armies from wherever. And there are um, a number of cases where um, the people su uh, support the outsider. Um, now, you're going to the evidence, the evidence that the cases that we know best are from later centuries. Um, and you'll get to them, um, especially from the um, 11th century. Um, but you've already had, for instance, the case of, say, the general Leontius. Um, so this is the general who deposed Justinian the second, um, the first time. Um, and he, he, um, he engaged in what was actually a kind of ritual political behavior almost in Constantinople. He was apparently afraid for his life. And so what he did was, is he staged a demonstration against the emperor and called the people to arms. And they came out and supported him because the emperor was unpopular. You, but you covered this about Justinian II, right? Absolutely. And, and that was that. Um, he took a huge risk. He did, you know, he, he had to have had a sense that public opinion was against Justinian because otherwise he'd have been toast. Um, and we actually know of people who tried the same thing, but it failed. Uh, in, um, for example, in 1056, the cousin of the previous emperor, so the emperor was Constantine the Ninth Monomachos, his cousin uh, named Theodosius, he tried exactly the same stunt. And it failed. He, uh, the emperor was, uh, the current uh, emperor was not as unpopular. Uh, Theodosius himself was probably not popular. He miscalculated. And by the time he reached Hagia Sophia, he, he was alone and the streets were deserted. Mm. And he just sat outside of Hagia Sophia, I think alone with his son and just, okay, now. <laughs> so he has to beg for mercy. Um, so there are a number of cases is happening. So those are calculated appeals for public support. And if they fail, um, you are a usurper who failed and you are condemned as either evil, wicked, whatever, or just dumb. If, they, if, if you succeed, you are the next emperor crowned by God and all of the rhetoric applies to you now. So hopefully... Um listeners recognize this dynamic and see that tension in the all-powerful emperor's position and they've certainly heard as you've described a number of rebellions in our narrative particularly the last two centuries just constant 
attempts. So as you looked into this, what did you begin to see as the the ideological justification um, for the emperor's position and the people's decisions on who to support should a civil war break out? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I couldn't make sense of this kind of behavior or the the aberrant nature of the Byzantine monarchy. It was just very, very strange. Um, in fact, it it seems strange to Westerners who visited, um, who were just appalled at the way in which the Byzantines seemed to treat their emperors, um, like almost having no respect for the office or whatever. Um, and especially for disregarding their oaths of loyalty and for violating what to Western sort of quote unquote feudal eyes were just unbreakable ties and, you know, just the, the absolute legitimacy that dynastic succession gave them in the West. This just didn't exist in Byzantium. So this this brings us to a second strand of the argument, and this has to do specifically with what the, the Roman background, the Roman identity of the Byzantine Empire and of the Byzantines themselves. So this is another very contested area uh, of research. Um, it's contested in actually in in as to whether this is a legitimate area of research um and i think it is i think we need to do a lot more to bring out the underlying roman dynamics of the byzantine political regime so this is a project on which i've been engaged for some time i've published some very preliminary uh, discussions of it so let me just outline very briefly what um, the, the different approaches that we can take to this. So one approach would be to just talk about the Byzantines Roman identity. And this is something I intend to do, but I haven't done it in a full and documented way. What it would involve is basically um, this, this falls into a, a, a by now traditional um, type of scholarly investigation where you look at what people call themselves and and ask, you know, what does this mean and why do they call themselves this? And in what parts of their lives do they think this name, you know, applies? So we, you know, we use Greek and American as something different from, you know, Orthodox and Catholic as something different from a professor of history or a man, a woman, so forth, a father. And so, so we have all these different identities. When the Byzantines called themselves Romans, what did they mean? Um, that for me, which is something that remains to be done fully, is somewhat easier to do because they call themselves Romans all the time and in all kinds of contexts, and it's sort of undeniable. What was a bit harder was to make an argument for the Roman nature of their political system. And that's what I did in the Byzantine Republic. That is the idea the, the underlying idea of the book is that that missing middle ground that shapes the political sphere, that enables the Byzantines to think and act politically, is not the imperial idea of the emperor crowned by God and so forth 
that we find in, in a number of texts, but primarily in panegyrical texts or praising the emperor once he's established. And I thought that that middle ground, um, let, me, let me explain it in, in a certain kind of way. So it's the, when we talk about the ideology of a political culture, I'm not referring to um, just any kind of statement that anybody can make, like the kinds of praises of the emperor that we find in panegyrical texts, like the emperor has chosen you because you were the best one, and we now all owe you obedience, and anyone who disobeys you is a criminal and unchristian and a monster and so forth. Rather, ideology is something that even we ourselves um, in our own lives don't really see that clearly. We don't talk about it that much because it's the sort of thing that we take for granted. Uh, these are the sorts of things that make intuitive sense to us, um, that facilitate our acts of political reasoning, right? So when you say, well, I support this policy because it just kind of makes sense, you're relying on certain fundamental assumptions about fairness, about justice, and so on, that you hope, well, you, you, you actually tend to assume everybody shares. Um, so in modern America, um, a large part of the population has absorbed the idea um, that hard work by itself leads to success, um, and therefore that failure, um, or put bluntly, poverty, is somehow your fault. And that's an ideology. Um, it's very rarely ever articulated in those terms, right? Um, and it takes um, a lot of work to get, say, students to understand the mechanisms of privilege, um, of the unequal distribution of opportunity, um, the way in which systems are structured to, you know, that it is not in accordance with that ideology. And so you have to kind of bring that assumption out. They're not ready with it. So I got to thinking about Byzantium this way. And it seemed to me, so one thing that everyone is taking for granted that yet nobody is really talking openly about, at least not in explicit terms. There are some places where they talk about it, but they're kind of cagey is the idea that emperors can be delegitimated if they act in certain ways, and specifically if enough of the populace uh, finds them to be unacceptable or unsuited for office even after many years of being in office. And if the populace expresses that discontent, in a substantial or loud enough way, that that by itself disqualifies, it, it makes the emperor into a non-emperor. They can de-acclaim an emperor by reversing the, the, the chance that they use when they acclaim him. So the idea that the, the, the Roman populace 
in large enough numbers that their collective behavior can constitute um, the grounds on which a man is made an emperor, but also unmade, um, that pointed me in the direction of the Roman background uh, and, and the, the Roman shape of the political sphere. Because after all, the Byzantine Empire, right, as I'm sure your audience is aware by now, is just a continuation of the Roman Empire. There's no date at which we can say, ah, here it shifts. It's the same political culture. The institutions have a continuous history. I mean, it changes. Everything changes all the time, but um, there's no point of rupture. And so if you trace this all the way back, I realized that the matrix of imperial politics is actually much, much older, and it goes back to the late Republic. So these ideas about popular consent and the legitimacy of office holders um, as reflecting um, a kind of universal consent of the people they govern is a deeply rooted idea um, in the Roman tradition, whether that is in Latin or in Greek. And that's where I found my middle ground. It's actually pervasive in, the, in Byzantine texts. It's just that nobody had paid attention to it for a number of reasons. The first reason is that no one was looking. The second reason is that the word in question is potentially, uh, tr it's tricky, it's potentially confusing. So the word in question is politia, politeia in English, politia in Greek. Um, and it's, it's, um, a, it's pervasive in Byzantine texts. They're always talking about this thing. And the problem is that it's very difficult to translate. And in many translations, it's rendered as the state, which is not exactly what it is. I mean, it includes the state, but, but it's not that. There are many places where that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so, for, and for example, if an author is itemizing the elements of the politeia and he includes uh, merchants and priests and farmers and soldiers and tax collectors, well, that's, that's not the state unless you have a Soviet you know, uh, you know, understanding of, of the state, and they didn't. Uh, so there are many things like that. Um, or when someone says that an emperor, uh, you know, funded higher education and the arts, and this adorned the politeia uh, with, you know, the, the, the majesty of letters and, and, and reason and beauty. And you're like, really? I mean, the state? Uh, is that what he doesn't mean that? So I got to working on this term, and what I discovered in, in tracing its genealogy, its, its contours, its shape, is that, in fact, this term, which is pervasive in Byzantine texts, especially historical and political texts, is simply the Greek translation of res publica, the old Latin, uh, res, uh, what we, where we get the word republic, and that you could actually even trace the process by which it uh, the the Latin term res publica came to sort of colonize the meaning of the Greek term politeia, um, a, a good place where your audience can go if they really want to delve into the philology of it are the um, novels issued by Justinian, Justinian the first. 
So we have 140 some whatever. Um, the full text of these novels, and and it's so fortunate that we have the Latin and the Greek versions in parallel columns. Now you'll need a, a magnifying glass to read them in the in the 19th century um, edition, um, and you also need the, the ability to read Greek and Latin. But you can actually see that where the Latin says res publica, the Greek says politeia. Um, this was a process that was completed already by that time. Um, anyway, so what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, it's important because in Latin, res publica does not mean a republic. Um, that is a modern, so our, our modern term republic is modern. Um, it, by now, it means something like a non-monarchical regime with a certain level of shared governance, at least among uh, the elites, um, and with a measure of popular participation and or representation. Um, th that's, that's not what it means in ancient Latin, just as a, as a philological point, right? So this is potentially confusing. So we refer to the Roman Republic as being something different from the empire. Um, that doesn't make sense in Latin, not at all. Right. So if you think about it, the Roman, what we call Republic, had an empire before it had an emperor. Uh, and conversely, later, the, what we call the Roman Empire is referred to consistently by its authors as a res publica. So something's clearly um, off here, uh, right, between the ancient terminology and the modern terminology. But to make a long story short, in Latin, res publica, it does not refer to a specific type of regime. That's how we think of it, right? Like how the offices are structured, especially without a king. But rather, a res publica refers to the, um, the, the common interests and the common property, uh, in fact, of a people who are, are constituted as a people by having um, the same kinds of laws, customs, understandings about morality, and the sense that they do form a political community which can authorize the use of power. Now, authorizing the use of power is what I use in the book, does not necessarily mean having access to organs of of you know to the to governmentality in other words that the people are directly participating in the government this is yes uh, i mean from my personal politics that's preferable uh, but in the roman tradition this is not necessarily what it meant um it 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 came to mean especially under the empire uh, a regime in which the 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 government if you will is beholden to its constituents, the uh, shareholders, the, the Roman people. And this is what makes Roman and Byzantine government so res responsive uh, to its people to a certain degree. But that's not so much the theme that I pursue in the book. What I pursue is um, how it's constituted and vulnerable to its population. And this is actually what explains this very turbulent political history 
which nevertheless does not affect the shape of the regime, the, the monarchy itself. Um, and so it's that underlying assumption that the emperors are beholden to their people and that when they cease to be popular in certain ways, they can be deauthorized and the people can put in whomever they want and, and do so. Um, so that sort of a, that assumption runs fairly deep, uh, deeply uh, in in uh, in Byzantium. It's funny thing, though, isn't it? I mean, in, in a sense that Byzantium, which we have so long associated with, you know, absolutist monarchy and all this stuff, it turns out to actually be more Republican in this sense than, say, the later Roman Empire, which you covered in the earlier, well, the, you, you, you came in at the sort of tail end of that, mm. right? So when emperors are ruling through armies, the people of the, 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 the populace of the cities or whatever cities the emperors are in have far less ability to show their displeasure. Um, whereas once the emperors settled down in Constantinople, this, there's this far closer dialectical relationship that, that emerges. And, and you've kind of traced the history of this in the 5th century. It was coming back to the 5th century. But uh, what I really want to draw this out for the listener and go all the way back to, to Augustus's role in this. Because it's one of the things in the book that you point out um, that, that we are so influenced, particularly the casual history uh, reader, by this this designation of the Republic followed by the Empire, um, and that we therefore think, you know, when we read the word Republic, the idea of modern Republics is, is sort of imprinted indelibly on us. And so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're suggesting here that when the power moves from the elected officers and the consuls into the hands of the emperor, the people don't necessarily think, well, it was nice when we had freedom, but now, <laughs> you know, it, we are just run by a dictator. Right. It was more nuanced to them that even though there was now only one officer who held the ultimate power, life hadn't changed in the sense that he could do what he likes, the same responsibilities and the same responsiveness they'd expected before remained in public life. And that, that by the time we get to Byzantium, transferred to this sense of, okay, I can't vote for a different consul, but I can vote in inverted commas for a new emperor. I can support someone else who will be more responsive to my needs and and I think that will blow a lot of people's minds as as an idea, because we're so fixed on the idea that an emperor represents autocracy and a republic represents democratic freedom, when actually that's a very modern, those are modern concepts we're putting back on the past for a, a state that, as you say, continues, um, you know, with people people's lives not changing nearly as dramatically as we might think when you look at it in terms of republic versus empire. Oh, absolutely. And let's not remember, let's not forget 
why the emperors came to be at all, right? In other words, the emperors, let's say Caesar or Augustus, they didn't, the, the history of their lives and their political careers was not them usurping power from the people and, and in some, you know, some way that a more or less violent way, but not actually it was very much the opposite. Caesar and Augustus came to power largely through popular support because they enough people were persuaded that they would protect the Respublica better than a their opponents. But certainly the this sort of the late Republican aristocratic class, which had by that point, so the, the, the last Senate lost its legitimacy. So the Senate had Caesar and Augustus and, and particularly Caesar were voted, right? They were given these powers by votes, by popular assemblies, precisely so that they could put down this plutocratic, oppressive gang of warlords and, and sort of financiers who had been oppressing the majority of Romans for so many decades. And the system of giving the emperors their, their rights, the, the, their powers by law, this persisted for three centuries. In other words, we know that as late as the third century, the early third century, uh, when emperors were made, there, were, there was a set of laws that were passed by the uh, Senate and the people, um, which authorized them to act in that capacity. Um, the leges de imperio. Um, and we have fragments of some of them. So it was, it was actually the people who, who backed Caesar um, in the initial move here. Um, and you're exactly right. The Roman people always thereafter expected the emperors to uh, behave, to rule in a manner that promoted the welfare. And that usually meant the material welfare, but later spiritual and doctrinal um, uh, considerations came into play um, of the Roman people. Um, so the type of regime, so we've become fixated on the type of regime. The Roman tradition itself is not so fixated. So for instance, if you read Cicero, um, this is before Augustus, his treatise on De Republica, on the Republic, you, you can see very clearly he doesn't think that a republic is a particular type of regime, but rather this other more abstract concept of a, of a people constituted in a particular way. And he goes through the different types of regimes that can govern a republic, uh, a, a democracy, a monarchy, an oligarchy. He, he considers them all as viable for a republic. It's just that he prefers what he calls the sort of mixed thing. And anyway, for him, it was primarily the Senate. So it was sort of ruled by the Senate where the other elements either follow along and give it legitimacy in this kind of dialectical relationship. If you actually replace everything that Cicero says about the Senate and you just put the word emperor in there, it's a pretty good description of, of the empire later on. But by the way, this tradition of Republican thought continued on down to the 18th century. 
So if you read Rousseau, Rousseau and the social contract, this is a Republican theory, uh, a theory of Republican governance. He also is kind of theoretically neutral among the different types of regimes. Um, and he has actually a very interesting analysis, um, which I used explicitly in, in the book, which was also ironically because Rousseau thought that Byzantium was all, you know, all the awful things that Enlightenment thinkers thought Byzantium was, you know, sort of superstitious and theocratic and absolutist and all that. But actually his description of a monarchical republic is perfect for Byzantium, especially when he's talking about reallocations of power uh, through violence. Um, and, well, he doesn't he doesn't put it that way, but, you know, that that really is what what must happen. So think about it in these terms. And this is actually very contemporary. This is very, very, very relevant. Because when you have a regime where the um, the apparatus of government is entirely in the hands of, say, in Byzantium, one person and his inner circle and then his wider circle, but at any rate, a more or less um, restricted kind of oligarchy, um, even if, of course, its members are um, constantly being repl replenished from below. But uh, anyway, if the people who constitute a kind of ideological support for the regime, or at any rate, believe themselves to be its stakeholders, have no access to the apparatus of government as such. So they, they cannot claim as people to have these assemblies, right, which act according to some kind of constitution in this way in relation to the other um, uh, mechanisms of government. They have none. Um, well, that poses a very interesting problem, right? What happens when the def sort of ideological sovereign, the people, and the governmental sovereign, the emperor and his entire apparatus, conflict? Now, look, for instance, at what's been happening in the world like in the past 10 years, right? I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? So in all of these countries, and I mean, Egypt is a very striking example, but it's not limited to Egypt. Um, so Egypt is in theory a, a republic. If you read its constitution, it's a republic in which the people are sovereign. What access to mechanisms of government do they have? And for that matter, what access to mechanisms of government do any of us have uh, in, in the US or in Europe, right? There come, so you'll say elections, primarily elections. Um, beyond that, whoever gets into politics successfully, normally that's an, an elite, more or less. In, in the US, I think all members of Congress are millionaires. And I, I think some of them are multimillionaires. And the rate at which incumbents are returned to office is somewhere in the 90s percent. So, yeah, that's that's an oligarchy and it's a plutocracy. Um, what access does the, the ideological or legal sovereign have? Well, not much. So in Byzantium, it was none. I'm not entirely sure that we have that much more. In Egypt, de facto, it was none. In other words, for the actual sovereign 
not the actual sovereign. I don't want to take sides in that, but the 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 theoretical, the ideological sovereign to take action uh, ultimately means violence because the government is against you or you're against the government. So what happens when you're against the government? And so you, your audience will have, if, if your audience is listening to podcasts about Byzantium, they are presumably people who are paying attention to what's going on in the world as well. Um, and they will know that everywhere from, from England to France to Greece, right, to Egypt, and even in the U.S., I mean, the Occupy movement, uh, to a degree, um, these countries are all experiencing a kind of crisis in the legitimacy of the institutions of government when enough people believe that they are acting against their own interests. And when that happens, regimes are in trouble. Um, this happened in Byzantium frequently, um, but here's what it takes. It takes, and, and, and you, you, this was shown very clearly in, in Egypt, enough people to blockade the center of, of government power as to effectively bring it to its knees. Um, this almost happened in Iran during the same period, right? And it, mm -hmm. you know, efforts were made in Greece and Spain, um, though they were not, they were probably not massive enough, which probably reflects on a divided electorate. Um, but when it is massive enough, it's, it's devastating for a regime. I mean, how long can it last? And if the regime is tyrannical, that is, if it uses force to suppress the expression of subject, subject's discontent, it can make things a lot worse. Right. So I can imagine that Mubarak, like any Byzantine emperor besieged in the palace, was thinking, do I unleash the troops or not? Mm -hmm. right? This is what Justinian was thinking. Because if that backfires, you're finished. If this just simply aggravates them more or brings more people over to their side, you're finished, um, like the Shah of Iran discovered. Um, so I think that even our own governments should pay closer attention um, to, and I think they do, uh, to discontent because they can only take it so far um, before the, the rope gets stretched too tightly, right? Mm. Um, and, uh, and Byzantium is just a, a laboratory <laughs> of these. If only we knew exactly what, set them off mm. it's very opaque because our writers our historians are all from the um the aristocracy yeah um but let me go back to the fifth century uh, i was going to conclude with this one point and, and bring it back to what i think happened then um because i don't want to suggest that the people and the emperors are always at odds right that 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 doesn't always happen in fact most of the time uh, it doesn't. It's not the, 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 the people are usually supportive of the regime. And there's no sense in which the people want to impose some kind of Republican ideology as opposed to the much more theocratic rhetoric used by the court. No, it's not like that at all. 
the people, the Byzantines definitely wanted to think of their emperor as being God's chosen and, and so forth. They, they wanted that. This was their emperor. After all, they had chosen him and acclaimed him. And um, I don't think they were being cynical or insincere when they did that. And there were times when I think the monarchy and the people um, acted together. And th this is an unexplored sort of area of research. I've only begun to think about it, and I, I haven't written about it yet. So you're getting it first. <laughs> hmm. um, so in part, how did the Eastern Empire survive in the fifth century when the West didn't? And obviously, you know, a lot has been written about this. Um, and, and, you know, many, you know, many factors have been identified correctly. Um, the, 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 the East, by the way, was learning from the failures and or disasters that struck the West, especially when it came to things like building walls and so forth. Um, you know, Alaric sacks Rome, Constantinople gets a new set of walls. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the Vandals sack Rome, Constantinople gets some seawalls. <laughs> okay, hmm. so one other thing that happened during the fifth century was that the emperors stopped moving around with their armies, and but this, this at the end of the fourth century, and settled down in Constantinople. But another thing also happens. In the West, imperial power becomes beholden to basically one warlord at a time. And there's this one guy who's running the armies. He's often, he's either a Roman general or, or half Roman, half barbarian, but, but fully Romanized. And he's in control of the armies. And that man's decisions are sort of all important for the fate of the empire, but also for the emperor himself. And we have some of these kingmakers, you know, deposing or executing their emperors, putting another one in place and so forth. Well, this doesn't happen in the East, and in part, it doesn't happen because the civilian aristocracy, the court, managed to successfully tame or control its armies, especially the kind of barbarian armies. And they did this in a number of ways. Um, they um, they divided the command. The, the, the commands remained divided. So you had five top generals, not one. Uh, they played them off against each other. But I think another thing that happened was a kind of alliance, if you will, between the people of Constantinople the, and the political authorities to keep political power in the city at the court and not in the hands of these, you know, Roman or Romanized generals. Um, you actually have an instance where the people of Constantinople rise up. This is um, in 399 and the events of 399-400 where they, they literally rise up and slaughter this Gothic army mm. in Constantinople. Um, and the you know the the remnants of the goths scatter and the emperors use other generals to put them down and so on then there's another case the emperor um leo the first he has a barbarian general who's trying to control him behind the scenes and he invites him to the palace and slaughters him and his entire family so it's the opposite of what's going on in the west 
And I think that in a number of ways, the regime, the, the, the imperial regime in Constantinople shifted and sought its support more from the people in Constantinople and less exclusively from the armies. Now, obviously, you, you want the armies always, right? But that's how I think you get this transition from those battlefield acclamations that you have in Amianus to the very civilian acclamations that you have in 491 with Anastasius. Do you think the physical geography of Constantinople plays a, a part in that? That it is difficult for um, an army to get in or out? Um, that that is, this fortress allows the people to have perhaps more of a say than they might in a city situated elsewhere. That's a good idea. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I think that needs to be pursued more. Um, what came to my mind when you, when I first heard the, what you were saying, what you were getting at was actually how close the Hippodrome is to the palace. <laughs> yes. Now the Hippodrome is close to the palace in Rome too. Um, and that's why it was made the way it was made. But I think that that proximity sort of is a, stands for the very close relationship that the palace sought with the people. The, the Hippodrome is the place where the, the largest number of people can assemble. And it's right next to the palace because the emperors wanted to have access to their audience um, as, as, you know, on their terms. And they tried to orchestrate and manipulate it as much as they, they could, of course. Um, but I think that the, the conjunction of those two um, is, um, is, is sort of represents the type of regime that evolved in Constantinople. But you're right. Um, both of them are also as far <laughs> from the kind of Thracian hinterland as you can get. And so an enemy army would have to go through quite a bit of city. Um, I wonder if they were thinking about this because it never actually happened, um, at least not until 1453. Um, even when the Crusaders took the city, it was from a different direction. Um, but, well... Constantinople being surrounded by the sea also meant that it couldn't be surrounded by armies. Um, you'd have, to, as a rebel, you'd have to control both the fleet and the army to do it damage. But think about Rome was vulnerable because you could have lots of armies camped around it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just interesting because you're... The, the period, uh, the, the crisis of the third century when, when armies begin acclaiming people sort of can't happen when you have fortress Constantinople as the center of government. But th those armies have to put themselves through extreme sieges if they want to change the government and the people are supporting the government. I see. That's a very good point. In other words, the physical infrastructure of the city acts as a kind of buffer between the emperor who's lodged as far out on the peninsula as possible and any possible armies. 
So his relationship with the people of the capital is even more important to him because, as, as you already said, if they're with him, his position is much stronger if there's a rebel out in the field. That's a very good point. Yeah, no, I, I think we need to study this a lot more. The, the creation of a Constantinopolitan regime. Yeah. And you have another book that you're working on connected to the Byzantine Republic. No, yes, um, I uh, I have been collecting notes and thoughts for that for some time. I'd say probably nine years by now. It was the book I thought I would write first, but then I started thinking more about politics than identity. But this is the book on identity. Um, so it will be my argument for what the Byzantines meant when they said they were Romans, how did they understand it? And what models can we use to understand that? Uh, because uh, changes in that understanding affect, you know, all the vocabulary that we use in talking about Byzantium. And I mean things like empire or, you know, multi-ethnic empire. Um, are, are these appropriate terms? Um, you know, even uh, theocracy and uh, medieval Hellenism and all of these evasions that we have to get away from the actual Byzantine terminology, um, which, I mean, literally translated what they keep saying is the Republic of the Romans. Um, so I've talked a little bit about, so my book is about the first part of that equation. What do they mean by Republic and, and where do we see it in their history? And the second one is going to be about the second part of that equation. Who are these Romans? But that's a topic for a different discussion. Yes. Well, it sounds like we may have to have you back on to talk about that. Okay. And uh, I know a lot of listeners are very passionate about telling people, you know, that this is the, still the Roman Empire. Uh, it's called the history of Byzantium purely for <laughs> classification in, in iTunes. Um, I also gather you're, you, you're working on a narrative history of uh, mid-10th to end of the 11th century, which uh, I imagine is a lot of work. Um, but I think a lot of listeners would be excited to read when we get to that period. Uh, yes, that's right. It, um, I decided to go back to the sources. This is a period, it's a, it's a fascinating and very, um, very exciting and crucial period of Byzantine history. Um, I've worked on many of the sources uh, in it, so the historians, um, Ataliatis, Selos, and so on. And I realized that um, much of my work on these authors has made it more difficult to use them as sources mm. uh, because they are, you know, very deliberate sort of literary um, well, artists and very politicized and we can't take them at face value. And so I thought I would put myself <laughs> in on the other side of the equation <laughs> and see, well, what is it that we can do? But anyway, so I wanted to go back to the sources because this is a period that hasn't been um, narrated and investigated um, in this way since the 19th century. Um, everything that we have since then uh, rests on, on that work uh, by uh, Schlumberger. Um, and I thought I would go back and see what it looks like now, not 
starting from all the modern narratives that we have about it, but looking at what the sources say. And, and um, that was a very interesting exercise. Mm. Um, oddly enough, I'd never actually written narrative history before, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, at the moment, I'm still struggling with the first crusade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I can imagine. Um, but that, I mean, that sounds fantastic. And the, the, there are not enough modern narrative histories of, of the Byzantine period for my liking. And that's obviously what the listeners are often looking for. So that's very exciting. And um, I think we should probably say uh, we're going to wrap things up there and encourage people to go and read the Byzantine Republic for themselves and find out more. Thank you, Robin. It was, um, it was a real pleasure to be here. I, I, I confess I haven't done this before, but um, I'm getting a taste for it. Um, so, so let me know if uh, if I can be of use for your your project. Which again, I want to congratulate you and thank you for. Um, we should be doing more of this ourselves, <laughs> but uh, in different media since you have this well covered. <laughs> uh, thanks again for coming on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I was blown away by some of the ideas that Professor Caldellis put forward, and so I'm going to discuss them a little further in our next episode and tell you a bit more about the book. But as I said at the start, do buy it for yourself if you'd like to know more. You can also find out more about Professor Caldellis's other work at caldelispublications.weebly.com.